You are now listening to the EnterVR Podcast. I'm Chris Miranda, your host. And today I'm speaking with Dr. Giuliano Calil. Uh, he's an adjunct professor at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey, California. He's co-founder of the Virtual Planet, a Virtual Planet, a company focused on communicating science in an immersive way. Um, and I'm just so very excited to speak with you today, Dr. Calil or uh, Giuliano. And um, again, thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Chris. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Likewise. And so uh, you're, you came across... Um, so the other day I, I realized I, I, I haven't... I've been... It seems to me uh, just talking about and being involved in virtual reality for so long. Um, it, since 20, 2013, I remember being one of those people that dreamed a lot and i still do dreamed about a lot about the potential virtual reality and about you know what what is what are the possibilities of this technology outside of just entertaining people and providing them an escape which are completely valid but also educating them and giving them something 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 different something that that mass media you know legacy media doesn't do anymore and i and, and somewhere along that line, I sort of got caught up in the technology, the just the intricacies, the details, and, and forgot the big picture. And, and, and it wasn't until very recently that out of nowhere, I just realized, you know, why, why has it taken me so long to speak to someone that's working? And not that I haven't, but it's been a minute. And I love the people I've talked to in the past. But man, I'm so excited to talk to you because you're working on something that is very close, very deep, um, very, very much aligned with my own passions, and it's it's the climate crisis. And you've developed an, uh, with your team a, a, a an app, an application, an experience um, that revolves around uh, at least the one that I'm familiar with is it revolves around uh, visualizing the impact of sea level rise across different regions and different communities. Um, it's available on Oculus Go, Quest, and it's on web browsers. Um, and I just want to, one, thank you for the work you're doing. And before we get started going deeper into your work, I, I just, just to give the audience an idea of the importance of talking about the climate crisis, what is, why is this issue important? What, what is at stake here? Yeah, thanks, Chris. It's a very important question because, you know, the, 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 the crisis is in many ways, it's already here, right? We talk about climate change and we think, oh, what's going to happen by the end of the century and things like that. But we're starting to see, you know, some of the impacts happening as we speak, right? Sea levels are rising and the sea level rise rates are increasing uh, rapidly. We have more frequent, intense storms happening, uh, wildfires droughts are getting more intense and more severe. So while it's really important to reduce our emissions and, and address and try to reduce, you know, the amount of climate change that we'll experience, we're already locked in to, to a good amount. So the need to adapt to a new climate is already here. And that's kind of my, my passion and, and, and what we're trying to tap into here is like, you know, we need to understand some of these issues better and although the planet's changing at a global scale, we really feel those impacts locally, right, at our communities. So how can we start talking about this to the, the general public and communicating some of this, quite frankly, like complicated topics 
in ways that don't scare people away, don't traumatize them, but, you know, call attention to the issues. But I think that more importantly, we need to look at solutions and what can we do at our local level or community level to, to really adapt, in addition to all the regional, state, federal, and, and global efforts that need to, to happen as well, right? Indeed. And, you know, I don't want to scare people, but I, I just want to make sure that we face these realities um, without without really sugarcoating things. And and I want and I want to know what are you what are what are the what would happen if we continue going down the current path of releasing forty to sixty billion tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere per year? Um, uh, at the current rate, again, you know, what would that look like, you know, 30, 50 years from now, if we just continue down this path? Yeah, and, and that's another very important question. And it's, we'll be basically looking at a different planet, I think. Uh, it might not be 30, 50 years, but, you know, a little further down the road, things will start, you know, they're already looking a little different as we speak, right? But it will be a very different uh, a system like a planet system because the, the issue with climate change is that we see some of these trends that are go, going on and on and then you know temperatures are rising ice ice melt over the planet is increasing sea levels rising and, and some of the things i mentioned before but there are you know some unknown tipping points and and, and some 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 problems that some of the systems might start breaking down and some of them you know there are also this feedback loops that were we know some of them really well, but there are some that are kind of unknown. We, we, we don't quite understand that. There's a lot of talk about, about the methane now and the permafrost and some of the things that when you start freezing the level, all that methane could be that's trapped could be released and no one knows for sure the, the exact amounts and what kind of like this uh, uh, tipping point impacts that could happen at some point. So it's really, really important that we, we do not continue on you know, this, this current levels of emissions. And just to bring back, uh, bring this subject back a little bit closer to you and your your personal mm -hmm. story. Why, why is this important to you? Why does this uh, subject matter to you personally? How did you, how did you find yourself working on 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 this subject? Yeah, and it was it was kind of interesting, Chris, when you were talking about the introduction about you know you you, you I think we we both got that that bug right. It's like this is a crisis. There's something. That needs to be done and what what is our role in this right how can we help and i think we it's kind of an all hands on deck kind of uh, a situation when we we need all the help that we can get and, and the great thing about this is that no matter what skills you have you know you can apply them to the problem right so my my story i used to work in in tech i was an it consultant i was designing decision support systems for large corporations for a long time and then around 2010, I, I had this, uh, that's when I caught the bug. It's like, uh, it was around the same couple of years after I started uh, kite surfing. So being in the ocean, in the waters and, you know, understanding the winds. And I always liked physics since I was a kid. So I started, I got really interested in understanding Earth systems, right? How does the planet function as a, a series of processes that are interconnected? And how could one single species be altering things at a planetary scale? So that 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 topic kind of still fascinates me, 
and and then I thought, what what? How can I get engaged? How can I you know apply some of the things I I knew at the time? And there was a big gap, right? Because I knew a lot about designing decision support systems, but I, I didn't know enough about the science and 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 the problem. So. I kind of quit my job. It was kind of a long process there to, to make that transition, but I finally created the courage, uh, quit my job, went back to school, and then I got a master's in environmental science and management at the Brand School at UC Santa Barbara. And then after being in school for about, you know, almost two years learning about the earth systems and, and, and climate change, I got even more passionate about the ocean. So I decided to continue my education and, and, and got a PhD in ocean sciences with, with a focus on climate change and coastal adaptation. That's when I said, well, how can we, you know, what, what needs to be done and, and how can we get there? So I went on and, and, and through the, the, the PhD, I learned a lot more about some of this connection, the connections between this complex, complicated systems and how we're affecting them. But also one of the things that became quite clear was uh, we would have this uh, uh, Friday afternoon uh, lab sessions where would, you know, the department would invite uh, scientists from all over and those great scientists to talk about their work. And I'll be sitting in the back and listening to some of those presentations. And, and, and quite frankly, it's like I wasn't really getting a lot of what was being communicated. So I went through this uh, serious case of imposter syndrome. It was like, I'm really not smart enough to be here. But then I started asking my colleagues about that, like, and, and, and they were like, well, no, it's, it's not just you. I'm not really getting a lot of what's been said here. And granted, that was like a, a, those were in-depth and technical talks, but uh, I started noticing, and we know that you know, communicating science uh, is it, a problem, right? So that became kind of the, the key thing for me. Uh, there are two things that are, or three really things that I'm really passionate about. One is uh, technology from my, my tech days. And, you know, we'll talk a little later. I can, you know, tell you a little bit more about the VR part. And we fly drones. We do 3D models. We use all these different technologies to, to develop this tool. So I'm really passionate about technology. Uh, this whole climate change and the Earth systems processes, it's something that really fascinates me. And then the part which was kind of part of my research was how do we bring people into the equation, right? So socioeconomics, until like five, six years, seven years ago, you didn't have socioeconomics as a component on vulnerability assessments for the coastline, for instance. We would look at models of sea level rise and coastal storms. We would look at property values on the coast or infrastructure, but not, you know, uh, what are the capacity of that community or those pockets of community to really adapt? So that's Kind of this multidisciplinary approach to this, I think it's uh, what made me really passionate. And bringing this all together in you know this new venture, like uh, Virtual Planet, and talking to communities and understanding their needs and designing these tools to help them communicate and engage with their communities, that has been like uh, uh, I think the most fulfill uh, fulfillment I had in my whole career, and I, I love it. So awesome! And why? Yeah, just to segue into this perfect segue into the the next question I had for you, which is, why use virtual reality and immersive technologies to transmit this message you want to convey? What is what is VR? What do these technologies do that legacy media cannot? You know, why why not do it over a mm -hmm. newspaper? Why not do it over uh, e email? Why not do it over uh, podcasts? Why why VR specifically? 
So there, there are a couple of reasons, right? And, and the reason why I got into VR was because, you know, I, I, I grew up in Sao Paulo in Brazil and I, I my whole life I've been playing video games. So I, I kind of, that's another passion that I kind of left off, but it's part of that the technology uh, uh, passion there. But the thing with VR is, and, and we were very lucky, lucky to partner with the folks at the Virtual Human Interactions Lab at Stanford that are doing a lot of the research on this. But And we see this on when we bring the headsets to our community events. The way that people react to those immersive images and being able to interact with them, it, it, it kind of triggers something different, right? It's not like looking at a flood map on, on, on Google Maps, for instance. It, it's much deeper than that. And there's some preliminary research showing that even though you know we do a lot of events at libraries and and and, and community halls, so if, even though you know you're you're putting your headset, you're sitting at, at the library, you know that you're there, but when you're transported to this aerial view of your neighborhood and you see some, it could be a flooding or it could be what it would look like if we would restore the dunes or something like that. So you see that the the, the changes, it impacts your whole body in a different way. So we have this aerial views that you're flying, you know, on the blimp. And if you're a little afraid of heights, you know, your palms will sweat, your heart beats a little faster. So physiologically, you react as if what you're seeing is real. And that's super powerful, right? And then, you know, there are some studies that use MRI in, in, in VR versus looking at the real image and, and the parts of the brain that light up are very similar as well. So we're tapping into a different uh, uh, cognitive processes here that I think make that decision making a, a lot more engaged than looking at just a, a photograph or, or, or a map. And one of the things that we've been using in C-Laborize and coastal adaptation specifically, you know, you go to your typical community event, there is a big map printed and parts of it are painted blue to detect some potential future flooding. But that doesn't, it's very hard to relate to those things, right? One of my colleagues once said, well, we're not birds, right? We're not used to looking things top down. We need some perspective. You need to be a little more immersed to really understand some of those things. So there's still, you know, quite a bit of research that's needed on that front, but we're, we're, we're seeing it in our events that when we bring the headsets and people go through it, they, they get way more engaged. They stay with at the event. All our events run late because people just want to talk more and, and, and they ask more questions. It's a much different reaction than when you go through a typical kind of syllabarized uh, uh, project. And one of the, the studies, one of my favorite studies is uh, from the, the group at Stanford was uh, they have you in VR and you're cutting down trees, you know, with a virtual chainsaw and they have this ground platform that kind of shakes when the trees fall down. And they tracked people's use of paper after, you know, going through the experience. And they found there was a significant uh, uh, decrease in consumption. I think it was 20% uh, less paper being used by the people that did the experience rather, you know, than compared with other folks that, that didn't do the experience in VR. So there, there's something there that we're tapping into that I think is really powerful. And I think it can be applied for, for good in this way and, and many others. Yeah, I just to piggyback on that, I think I also saw something where Stanford was giving people um, an avatar of Superman or some sort of like uh, really strong character figure and they yeah. would see themselves at Superman and all of a sudden 
or that you know a strong character uh from a comic or whatever and they would all of a sudden they've noticed uh that a good portion of them would fix their posture and right. they'd notice that their self-esteem sort of went up like there was a there was this measurable impact on their self-esteem i i think that um using vr in the in this way is is amazing and and to hear you speak about people staying after hours to engage with your content um brings me a lot of hope that's that's a great sign and just to dig deeper into um the idea of exploring sea level rises in, a, in an immersive way can you tell me more about that sort of design process um what did it look like you know at, at the beginning um sort of walk me through some of the ideas that you were you and your team had going forward that made it and didn't make it to the final product yeah that's uh uh honestly still a work in progress chris <laughs> where uh, the way it all started was uh i i love flying drones and i was out in the coast here i live in santa cruz california so i went to the to the beach here and i was kind of flying the drones over the cliffs trying to do maybe a 3d model or just for fun and then i had this insights like why why can't we use this great images, right? You can get like a 4K, a really high quality video from a drone for, you know, a few hundred dollars these days. It's like, why can't we use tools like this to communicate some of these issues? And so I had that idea and then I started doing 3D models and, and it, it, using this technique called photogrammetry where you take, you know, hundreds of photos from a bird's eye view and then you the computer kind of through some uh, really smart uh, uh, math and trigonometry calculates, creates a 3D cloud of points, and then you can make that into a model. You apply texture, and it looks really cool. And I was thinking of that, and then at the same week, I was like, whoa, what if we could we do that and put that in virtual reality so we could immerse uh, people on it and, and see how that would work? So that was kind of the inspiration for this. At the time, I called a couple of colleagues uh, that are in Brazil, and one of them was teaching video game design at a college. And I called him and said, hey, do you think we could do this? And, and he kind of, at that time, said, well, I, I don't think the headsets could support it, but it's an interesting idea. Let's talk again in another six months to a year. So we kind of waited, and then I, at that time, he introduced me to Paulo, who is uh, the other co-founder, the other half here of uh, Virtual Planet. And he's our, our kind of tech guru, and he knows a lot about VR development and some of the work. And it was right around the time when the Oculus Go headset was being uh, uh, launched. And that was kind of a, a game changer because you didn't all of a sudden require a very expensive laptop to run the VR applications on. It's kind of a, a standalone, right? So we got a couple of those. Paulo is in Sao Paulo in Brazil. So he flew over to California. We spent, you know, two weeks here locked up in my garage, really. And then we came up with a prototype. And at that time, I was working with the city of Santa Cruz on incorporating socioeconomics to their climate adaptation plan, which is kind of a separate thing. But then I, I approached the team and one of our uh, long-term uh, uh, partners, her name is Tiffany Wise-West. She's kind of a, our climate adaptation and action director here for the city. We showed this to her and her team and she's like, oh, this is, this is great. We really want to use it. 
Uh, and then I said, well, what kind of features do you want to do? So we kind of co-designed the, the, the application with them. They gave us some ideas. We would try things out, bring it back to them. And that was kind of the beginning. And many of the, the new things that are being incorporated into the tool since then, which was like, you know, multi-language was important. It wasn't there at first. So we said, no, it's very important to reach out to non-English speakers if we really want to be inclusive with the solutions that we're building. Uh, subtitles for accessibility. We have a, a, the ability to do like survey, right? So what we, as you go through the Santa Cruz experience, at the end, of, there are some points where we ask you, do you think this is a good idea or not? And the city gets that information and uses that in their planning. And then the pandemic kind of came up and we thought, well, how can we can't have events anymore? So we decided to do, oh, a 360 video of the experience would be a really cool thing for folks to try out. So why don't we do that? And then the mobile and the web base. So that's when we kind of branched out to, to other platforms as well. But it's, a, it's a, a, an ever-evolving process, every new iteration. We added a, we had a, a few new features too, so... I mean, so much good stuff here because on the one hand, your ability to adapt to the pandemic and make the application more widespread by putting out a 360 browser version and giving it out, put it out on mobile, uh, more platforms, your ability to work with cities, uh, with the city government and get them data through surveys um, is, is actually really, really cool. Like I, I... Mm -hmm. That's awesome. I'm really glad um, because then the city gets to see how important this issue becomes to their constituents and how much. I mean, that's, that's right. And it makes so much sense. Like, why wouldn't you want to gather this immediate data from the people experiencing this? And um, I'm curious, though, in an ideal world, ideal scenario, let's say you have an unlimited budget. Um, with an Im immense team, uh, what sorts of features or ideas would you implement on the app going going forward in this ideal scenario? Yeah, th that's a question we ask ourselves a lot, Chris, because uh, on the one hand, it would be we're looking at how can we make this more uh, scalable, right? We don't want it to, you know, the costs are dropping, you know, every day almost. But, you know, we want this to be uh, accessible to any coastal city. And to do that, we were kind of streamlining our, you know, the production process and how we develop those things. So we can bring, you know, the, the mission really is to democratize these tools. We started this about two years ago. And, and so far, we're the only ones doing it. So we, we really need others to kind of pick on it as well. And, and, and so we can start spreading this out to more and more communities, but there is a component of this as well that is every co community is a little bit different. So we still need to keep that local look and feel so people can relate to the application, right? So when we go into Santa Cruz, uh, the virtual environment that you're in is like a beach uh, shack, kind of a funky looking place, which kind of speaks to the personality of the city, the town. And And if you go to Long Beach, it's like it's 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 a different kind of environment. Or Turner Station, for instance, where the senior center was featured in the in the in the application. It's in a park. But then the, we talked to the community. It's like, oh, they said it would be great to see our lunch room as the virtual environment. So we have to. So it's kind of a, a little bit of a with a struggle. But I think at the moment, I think. Uh, 
our next step is really to get more uh, or to hire someone and, and on the to really reach out to more cities, present the products to them and, and get more projects going on this kind of a, a, we're calling it a starter pack where you have the, you know, maybe just a, a first uh, a 360 view of the neighborhood with some impacts and a couple of solutions just to get the conversation going, right? We can't really wait to, to, to talk about these issues. We need to speed up how fast we're doing it. And we're seeing how much tools like this can help. But I, I don't think that, uh, I think if we would get unlimited funds, we would just, you know, buy a bunch more of headsets and, and give it away to people so they could uh, kind of start using it more. Because one of the limitations of this, as you know, is like not everyone still has a, a, a VR headset. So how do we get that reach out? So we're being really strategic on, you know, let's use it at events. Let's get the right people that need to be talking about this at each community to experience it in the headsets. But let's also have it available in other mediums so people can uh, um, see it as well. You know, I, I I was saving this question for later, but I just got to bring it up now it was because you just brought yeah. up a really great point, And that is the targeting, like who who should experience I. Honestly, everyone should experience it, but right. um, just with the limited amount of time we have, I, you know, I was listening to doctors or Sir David King. He's a, a professor with more than 500 papers published um, mm -hmm. out of Cambridge last night on a podcast. And he was talking about how the next five years um, need to be dramatic in terms of the things we do on a global scale um, to avert a calamity and and it, and it will define the next century and I was thinking to my and and again because we're sort of in this weird race against time uh, on a slow moving cruise ship wreck I th I, th I wonder about again the, the targeting you know uh, yes everyone should experience it experience your uh, see this the sea level rise application but what about how do how do you reach um, the top one percent of people who exercise an immense amount of power and wealth and influence. Um, you know, I was I I can't remember where this came from, but I'm sure I can pull up and put it in the show notes. But I I saw somewhere that the that the biggest 100 companies on the planet are putting out something like 70 to 80% of all the CO2 in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So if you can reach out to their CEOs, to their families, to those shareholders of those companies, maybe what, that's like 2,000, maybe 3,000 people, and you put headsets on these people and give them this experience, give them something that as close as possible to the over overview effect, I would imagine that you could have... Um, a very um, a, a widespread impact um, compared to me. I mean, I'm just a dude, I, and I want to help, and I'll help. I'll add my little grain of sand, but those guys will add, you know, truckloads of sand to the mm. to to contributing. And I and I, again, you know, have you thought or brainstormed more? What are your in general? What are your thoughts about you know how to reach that that target audience? Yeah, that's uh. Uh, excellent question too, Chris. I, I think, I wish I had a, a good answer, but what we've been doing so far is focusing on community level engagement mm -hmm. with the folks that can make the decisions at the community level. 
So we, I don't like this word is overused, but the idea is like the stakeholders, right? Who the folks that have an interest in that maybe piece of the coastline. So like homeowners, business owners, city council, uh, some elected folks. So within that local context, I think we are reaching kind of the right people to, to, to have that impact at the local level. But as you alluded to, the things take a long time, right? So if you want to change, you know, some building code to avoid new constructions on areas that are, you know, that have higher risk of coastal storm flooding or sea level rise and other things. That's a process that takes a while. And, and that's when tapping into those more uh, people with higher influence, it, it, it would get, you know, a better benefit. One of the things I'm thinking that there is something on the news a while back on how much, you know, billionaires care about climate change and some of the efforts that they were doing. I think, you know, some foundations now are starting to invest on it. So I think that, as I mentioned earlier, like all hands on deck, right? You need to have that massive change at the global level, but also at the community side. And, and at the moment, we're more positioned to look at the community side. I'm always trying to be, because as you also mentioned, this is, this is a daunting kind of, it's, it's a, it could be almost paralyzing, right? When you look at the size of the problem. So a couple of things that I do to kind of keep sane and, and, and keep the wind on my sails, I like how you said that, is really to focus on what's my sphere of influence, right? Where can I, you know, make the most uh, uh, change and impact and, and, and then try to expand it a little bit more. The other thing I do, of course, is that I love technology. So I decided, well, climate change is such a tough topic that I really want to still do the things I'm passionate about while working to help solve that problem. But kind of being also mindful that I have a limited you know, energy and time and, and the impact that we can do. But, you know, when I hear from folks like you, Chris, it gives me, you know, it, it just warms my heart just to see that we're, the, the impact seems to be a little even uh, a wider spread than, than I anticipated. One of the projects we're working on that I like to mention very briefly, it's a wildfire experience. It's like a 360 film that we work with the town of Paradise in California and a couple of a nonprofit here too, the Nature Conservancy, and part of the the goal of that experience is to bring it to uh, Sacramento, our capital here, and show that to some of the senators here and the legislators to say, hey, we, we really need to start addressing this as a, a prevention issue rather than a recovery, because if you with millions of dollars we can save a lot of land people resources and avoid billions of dollars in, in consequences after the fires happen. So that's another way that we're trying to, you know, maybe bring it to some attention to the issue. Because when we started working on that project, like it's, if you haven't seen what a, one of these wildfires look like, it's like you can't really imagine. So we kind of put you in that first person perspective. We don't let, you know, the fire doesn't get super close to you because we don't want to, again, traumatize people. But it's a way to convey, you know, how violent some of those events are, and 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 how like how urgent the need for uh, action is. Yeah, I think you're a hundred percent right in doing what you're doing by bringing these very visceral, very real experiences to um, powerful people at the sac at, at the Capitol in Sacramento. Um, and I think it it applies very much to that one percent. Um, target audience where in uh, the costs 
of doing nothing or doing very little about the climate crisis will yeah. outweigh the uh, the benefits of being preventative. Like I think, again, I, I need to pull up where I got this number, but somewhere around the cost of doing nothing or going the same path oh, will yeah. cost the economy like $100 trillion. And if we try, really, really try and we'll try to work things out, we could uh, we could really put a dent and change and pivot in the right direction with uh, I don't know some other number like maybe a hundred billion. Again, I gotta look up those numbers, but then the number would be a lot less, definitely yeah. a lot less to be preventative. And rich people would be like, yeah, I I could I'll, I'll I'll be able to afford a lot more yachts later on, and my children's children will have a lot more yachts later on if there's a planet around. Um, yeah. So yeah, one. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. One number that comes to mind is from FEMA, where I think based on I forget how many projects that they did, but it was like a couple dozen or more. They they saw that one dollar in uh, uh, preparation saved them about six dollars uh, when compared with places where adaptation wasn't implemented. So it's it's very that link is very clear. Yeah, there's weird. I I gotta say there's patterns in. Um, life or the universe or the simulation we're in that are oh, yeah. super strange <laughs> I gotta say like um, and before I jump into that because that's that's a little bit more down the rabbit hole I, you know, I want to share that I I was working a little while ago on my own um, VR you know you heard of Microsoft Flight Simulator where it's just this yeah. giant open world literal world of like places you can visit uh fly through and, and stuff like that and i started mm -hmm. working with myself on a um fire uh, i saw a video once on youtube not too long ago because last year we had some wildfires in california that were crazy and yeah. i'm anticipating that this year is not going to be fun either um but i got inspired to want to do something and i started working on this um uh, app using unity where basically it's a flight simulator um but instead of just flying around you're fighting fires um it's a little more interactive um nice. and it's and it it definitely targets more of that audience of like people who want to have that extra level inter interactivity and 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 just being able to feel good about because again you, that stanford study of like getting people to pick up trash more Maybe all of a sudden, if you're fighting fires through this VR simulator, maybe you'll care about the forest more, and uh, mm -hmm. and you, maybe you'll become uh, a stakeholder out of you know just because you had that experience virtually. I I, I got to give it to those people out there fighting fires. It's it's an insane oh, yeah. job. It really is, and um, I'm glad you're thinking about these things as well. Yeah, it's insane. And, and this year, first, I'm afraid to say, it's setting up to be worse than, than previous years because it's been, I think, the driest April, I think, in California's history is, or recent history as well. So fingers crossed here for, you know, some humid days. Indeed. And there's no one, this perfect segue to my next question, because there's not one single silver bullet that's going to save us all from this you know cascade of different things that are coming um from all different directions for example with your elkhorn uh slew experience that that's out in monterey i believe um, right. you guys were highlighting that uh, uh by using restoration methods um native plants and all that good stuff you could uh, perhaps minimize the impact of sea level rise 
um and and perhaps you can talk to me more about the dynamics of how how that works and the different solutions that could happen um in order to prevent some of the worst of the worst uh in different across different communities yeah that's that's yeah great you brought that up because you know there are things we can do today there are things we can do in the in the next 10 20 30 years and then there are things that we'll have to do later uh, down the road right so uh, a typical uh, adaptation options that we see here in California and we've been doing this I think over the, the whole country even like in, in Texas in Florida it's just this idea of beach nourishment or sand replenishment where it's like you just add more sand to the beach as it gets you know eroded and washed out uh, my my advisor shout out to you know dr uh, Gary Griggs, he has a great uh, op-ed at the LA Times just last week talking about this. I can send you the link to that too, Chris. But the idea is that he's saying on, on that piece is that it's you can't win against the Pacific Ocean, right? We can try, we can buy some time, but eventually, you know, the only viable long-term option is to maybe start moving back from the coast. It's a lot of water. We're, it's a lot of water. And uh, we don't need to do that today, right? When we talk about this idea, it's a concept. It's very controversial. It's called, it talked about as managed retreat. Oh. Uh, but it's this idea of, you know, when we use retreat, it means like we're being defeated. And that's not, it's like smart planning, right? It's not really uh, being defeated. But when we start talking about that, it becomes, a, it's like, we're not talking about doing that next year, next five years, maybe not even in the next 10 years. But eventually when we get there, how do we talk about it and, and what are the more uh, just and, you know, uh, uh, ways to transition to that and, you know, so people retain their their wealth and, you know, their livelihoods and, and all of that. So that's kind of a, a tricky thing. But typically short to, to midterm, you know, there's these options of adding more sand. You can also create vegetated sand dunes. But, you know, uh, I participated in a couple of studies looking at the cost-benefit analysis of different adaptation options. And, uh, you know, the other option that you have is create uh, armoring or building a wall to protect the a property. But that's, you know, has trade-offs with it. So when you build a seawall, if you have the sand on the beach that gets eroded, you know, in the winter, sometimes it, it comes back on the, on the summer, sometimes not as much, depending on the size of, you know, the storms. But over time, as sea levels rise, the, the, the beach can't migrate inland. So when it hits that seawall, it just ends up drowning. And then you have, you don't have a beach anymore. You just have a seawall with the water hitting it. And it costs money to maintain that. And you lose all that recreational value that you had with the with the sand. People come in, you have tourists, you have, and that's that's real economic value. And then when we ran the numbers of all these options in the long run, armoring the beach always comes at like uh, on the lowest uh, uh, cost benefit, you know, uh, ratios there, because it just it would it would. It, you, you lose all of the, the benefit of having the, you know, nature has value too. And I think part of adapting to, to climate, you know, has this idea of nature-based adaptation. Like how can we use nature to protect and help us to adapt? You know, there's studies also from Hurricane Sandy where areas that were protected by mangrove forests saw fewer damages to, to their properties and they were able to recover fast. And then mangroves also increase fisheries value. They filter the water that's coming 
from the land and they, they take up extra nutrients. So you avoid having, you know, uh, uh, algae blooms or, it, and so there's all this co-benefits that you get when you use nature to help us to adapt. And that was something that we're looking at the Elkhorn School, right? You could just build a giant wall there that would cost a lot of money and will basically kill the marsh. We were talking uh, before the, the 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 chat here, Chris, about the sea otters, mm-hmm. you know, all those different, you know, uh, uh, great things that we have, or you could work with nature and create, you know, a gentle slope and give the marsh room to migrate inland at least for a few more decades. Or you could just raise the the, the the highway on piles and allow the ecosystem to kind of thrive underneath it. But on the other hand, you have to look at the costs, right? It costs a lot more. One option could be more expensive than the other. So that's one of the things we try to show on the on this uh, applications is kind of this trade-offs between uh, um, these different choices that we make today. And if you really want to raise a highway for six miles, that's a... 30, 40 year project, right? So we have to start planting now and planting the seeds uh, uh, to to really get it right, I think, or at least uh, least uh, the word I'm looking for, maladaptation, right? We don't want to keep doing, take making the same mistakes. It's definitely just like how you said. There's definitely going to be a combination of different strategies and and different tools that will have to be used on a sort of case by case basis to figure out ways to adapt uh overcome and 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 do our best uh and i going back to your you know the application your 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 application and um and sort of from a a user experience design perspective when you were you know in the before time before the pandemic back in those days (laughs) back in the good old days uh or the before days when you observed other people trying the experience um, and again, from that user experience design sort of ma- hat on, like, you know, what sort of reactions from the users made you say, oh, okay, I, I did my job. Oh, okay. I didn't, oh, that's interesting. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. I didn't see that coming. Can you highlight some of that, those, those, those stories, those, um, those things that yeah. happened? Yeah. Yeah, I have, and it's a, it's super interesting. I'll start with my own reaction to one of the things we did, which is, I think, that's when I, I think, you know, all of us in VR have, or a lot of us, I talk to some folks, they have this, this one moment that they usually remember when they really got the impact of VR. And to me, I, even though I've been playing games for a while, and it wasn't until I think last year when I really, it hit me that way, which was looking at an image from Turner Station, which is a you know community in, in Maryland that we, we did one of our first apps. So the way that we do this, we look at a, a 2D model of potential flooding scenarios. We use, you know, the NOAA's sea level rise viewer for that. So we look at one, two, three, four, five, six feet of sea level rise and what the, the it was for a community park, like what it looks like. And so when I sent that model to our artist, uh, shout out to Gianluca, our kind of artist extraordinaire. Uh, and uh, so he worked on the renderings and he sent it back to me and I put my headset on and I'm looking at the park. And then I looked to the right, Chris, and I saw the neighborhood. It was all underwater under, you know, most of those scenarios. And I was like, oh, I first I forgot to tell him that it was not part of the scope was the first <laughs> part. But that's great because we got it. But when I looked to the right, I, I had that feeling. It was really like getting like a punch in the, the stomach. It was like 
oh my God, it's like we're talking about the spark. But if you look at those houses, there's hundreds of houses over there. It's a low income neighborhood. It's like, how are we going to adapt to, 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 to protect, you know, the community here? So that to me was my kind of experience. And, and thankfully in parts to that image, now there is a conversation about the community's resilience as well, not just the park. So that was kind of one of my, I love talking about this because it was super powerful. I still get kind of the same feelings when I kind of talk about it. Uh, a, a couple of others that we had, it was like some folks uh, that in Long Beach, we showed some of the communities, uh, some of the scenarios to local home uh, residents. And they were looking at the peninsula area and they're flooding. And then this, this one person I recall saying, well, oh, my house is, uh, can you show me my house flooding? And it was kind of an interesting kind of like, why do you want to see that? But it's just, I think something to that medium again, right? How do we, you know, show or see and experience these things? We did have one uh, person in Maryland that had a stronger reaction. There's a, uh, you can actually, I think, hear her at the um, a story that came out on NPR about that project. I can also send you the link to that, where it was someone that had experienced uh, flooding in her life before. So she had a very strong reaction. Oh my God, I'm not ready for this. And I just tell her, no, just remove the headset, let's talk about it. So, and, and kind of brings me to one thing I'd like to, to, to kind of bring up too, Chris, real quick, is that even though we love technology, I think this using this technology to address some of these issues, it, it can't be just about the technology. So we make sure that every project that we work on has an on the ground component. So it's very important, I think, to have someone that you can talk to, especially at a community event, because when people see their own city, their places that they, their house or places that they live in, then there's not only their reactions are stronger because they're seeing that in VR, but they're also stronger because they recognize the place, right? So I think it's important to, to take care with that. Uh, but uh, the other reaction that I have I had was at a, a natural history museum here in Santa Cruz. We were showing some of the Santa Cruz uh, scenarios here. And there was this one person that was, he was on the other extreme, right? He lost all hope that we're going to solve this. I was like, well, why do you even bother? It's like, there's nothing we can do. So we, we kind of talked to, it was a couple and we talked to them. I was like, no, there, here's what you can do. And so I think it's important to have that call to action at the end to spark that hope and that interest. It's like, and I always do that by asking people, so what are you passionate about? What are you good at? What do you like working? And, and then we kind of, it's very easy to find ways to apply that to help with the, 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 the climate crisis, right? And, you know, I feel like this is the perfect place, the, the sort of, uh, I, I've worked as uh, building, I worked at building communities across different virtual reality companies. And, and, I, and I, this just sort of reminds me about um, one of, one of the many ways to build a community is to build around a common cause. Um, and the common cause here is the survival of the human species. Um, I, you, I feel like you guys, and I am sure you've thought about it. I'm sure that there's, I'm sure you probably already did, but I'm curious to know whether, um, you, you have a, are you providing people with a call to action where like, Hey, here's the Facebook group or here's the discord link to join up with other people who've tried the experience, who are impacted just as you, who want to talk about it, want to share what they want to do together, want to organize because it's a, 
this is again this is like there's like uh, i guess the closest thing is like soccer like oh okay we're real madrid and those guys are chelsea and we definitely don't like those guys so right. you know, uh, we're let's let's band up you know let's band up against um this calamity this crisis um because the the future is is here like we're we run, we're out of time and so um i wonder again w what are the conversations around building communities uh or a community that can mobilize just based on this these experiences that you're providing people so one of the things that we do is uh we try to find and we work with cities that are also representative of similar cities in, in different coastal areas so they can if they can do a, an experience for their own that they at least can see oh I, I, this town looks a lot like santa cruz so i can use the santa cruz to relate to some things Uh, so what, what we see happening is the, every new project that we start, they want to talk to the communities where we just did the projects. And we also find, found that the, the communities where we do the projects, they're super eager to talk to the next ones as well. So there's this, uh, uh, it's not formal, and I love your idea of this uh, community of sea level rise, you know, explorer users And, and try to organize that in some way. I really, I really appreciate that that idea, Chris. We haven't done that in a formal way. It's being more like the project teams consulting with other cities that we worked on, and like the we just published a, a paper kind of summarizing three of our projects, and also adding a little bit of a lit review from uh, you know the the use of VR and environmental literacy and some other things that. Uh, uh, I can also definitely send, send you the link to that. So that paper was written by a team from Turner Station, Santa Cruz, and Long Beach. So it's like we have eight uh, uh, authors in that study, and it was great. It was a really great collaboration process. It was like, oh, what did you learn? What did we learn? And how can we apply this to the next uh, uh, iteration of the project? But uh, we haven't done anything on the, that user community, and I think that's a great, uh, great idea, and I'll definitely uh, look into that. Yeah, because then I'd be like, yeah, I guess I'm not alone in this, and there's other yeah, people. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, I, I gotta, I gotta say, I'll be honest here. I, I have a fault in my character when I deal with people who are climate skeptics. I'll be honest. I, oh, I, you know, yeah. I gotta be frank with people. I've, yeah. I'm not, nothing to hide. But like, I, I, there will be instances where I'll meet someone really cool, and I want to be their friend, and I want to hang out with them a lot, and then they introduce me to their friend. And then we'll talk about climate change. My friend likes, you know, is is aligned with climate change, but their friend will say something like, "Oh, I don't think, uh, I don't think humans are causing climate change. I don't think we have the ability to. The world is so big. How could we right. cause climate change? Look at me. I'm just a, I'm just a person." Um, or they'll say something like, "Oh, I don't. Uh, you don't even." They'll say something like, "Chris, you don't even know what 40 billion tons of fossil fuel looks like emitted into the atmosphere every year. What does that even mean? It's a number that's too big for you, for even you to understand. How can they understand it?" And so, I get I get angry, and I don't never speak to them again. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, definitely a fault in my character. Um, but how do you approach climate skeptics? Like, how do you? How do you have the patience to reach these kids? I mean, that's a meme, but to reach these people mm -hmm. that that uh, that don't share uh, the idea, the that don't share the belief that we have. 
Yeah, that's a that's an interesting one. I believe in facts, by the way. It's not. Yeah, that's uh, you know, I was at a call and one of the 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 sci- senior scientists, I think from NASA, said, "Well, it doesn't really believe if, it doesn't matter if you believe it or not. It's it's happening. It's science. It's not going to change the outcome." But I, I think the the issue here is is this right? There's you have extremes like on everything, and there's maybe you know twenty thirty percent of the people that are not they. They don't believe it for whatever reason. They deny, you know, that that this is happening. And there's pretty much nothing you or I or anyone could do to change their minds, right? So I think I wouldn't waste uh, energy with them because, unfortunately, you know, I think there's that uh, middle of the road. People they're like, well, I'm, I, 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 like you mentioned, your 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 friend's colleague that said, well, the planet's so big. That how can we be doing this? And that was kind of part of my my journey, right? It's like, well, the planet is so big. How can one species be altering? And let me study this. And then, you know, 10 years later, I'm here talking about it. But not anyone, not everyone has the luxury and time and interest to, you know, quit their jobs and go study this issue. So I think it's important. I try to tease out and figure out, well, is this person interested in learning more? Or is this person like looking for, you know, a confrontation or just trying to, you know, what what is that? Is there room here for some conversation that could be, you know, constructive in a way to kind of make their minds in a way? But it's 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 tricky. We just applied for some like a, a, a grant to do a, for, a, a kind of a different study. Because even if they don't believe it, we still need them on board with some of the solutions, right? And and I like to get you know them on board with us. But there's this idea of framing, right? So instead of talking about this, like you know, you go to a community that's that 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 you know people are more resistant to the idea of climate change and sea level rise, and you talk. So if we don't, what if we didn't talk to them about climate change and sea level rise, but we talk to them? It's like, hey, remember Sandy? Remember Katrina? This things could happen again. And here's like five things that we can do to adapt. Or maybe, you know, a question I'm interested in, is there ways of presenting the information to, the, to them that could maybe shift their belief systems or break into some of that resistance? There's some great uh, uh, research coming out from uh, Florida. A uh, uh, couple of researchers, I think from Georgia, did the study there where they actually uh, found that uh, animated images with some text kind of strategically placed around the images could help break some of those barriers and, and, and convince people that, you know, some of those things are real. So I think that's super exciting. Another thing where I think VR can have a, an active role, but I think it's going to be a combination of VR, you know, or immersive tools or animated features with, you know, this framing uh, conversation. And, yeah, there's one more thing that I think. I'll get back to that. I think there's one thing I'm forgetting here, but it's it it, it is hard. It, it, it's not not an easy task. No, it's. Oh yeah, I remember. The, the thing is that you know there's a, a a strong correlation, of course, between you know a, a, a political affiliation and things like that with the you know how much you you believe it or not in some of those things, and, and I think. This idea of, you know, I belong to a tribe and, you know, I listen to my leaders and I identify with them. So I think there's the other angle of this where, you know, maybe finding someone in these communities that become the spokesperson or someone that can deliver that message rather than, you know, this 
this guy from Brazil that has a VR company coming in to talk to me about Silavorize. What we do is like we find that trusted community leader. We bring that person in, someone that's you know on board with the issue, and then we get them to bring their friends, right? So like your friend's colleague, maybe your friend would have a you know a way to reach to his friend that would be more efficient than if you or I tried to do it, right? It's you know, and it, you know, it's such a it's such a weird time we live in, where in science itself is politicized. Like yeah. I'm not an expert. I, I I will tell you right now. I know mm-hmm. I know I know some uh, I know what uh, that uh, four hundred and seventeen parts per million um, mm-hmm. when referring to CO two means that for every million particles of uh, uh, million particles of things in the air, four hundred and seventeen of those are CO two. Like that, I'll, I understand that. I understand mm-hmm. that. Um, the whiteness of the of the glaciers reflects sunlight. I understand right. that CO two gets trapped gets trapped in the atmosphere. It just doesn't leave the earth. Like I I, I but but be, I understand these things because there are people who spend decades, years of their lives invested in working on and learning and 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 cons- and consistently updating their theories, their hypotheses hypotheses yeah. you know using scientific method i it's like if i have if i have a, a growth in my arm and i don't know what it is i'm not gonna go to a car mechanic you know i'm gonna go to a doctor <laughs> and the doctor isn't at, you know because the doctor is a guy who know it it's like climate scientists are the doctors of the earth and if 97 percent of climate scientists hey we have cancer then I'm gonna listen to the doctors. I'm not gonna listen to right. again the the people. You know, I love my dad. He's an awesome man. But the other day he told me he's like, "Hey man, you know, Fox News is predicting that uh, in a hundred years we're gonna have cities in Antarctica," and I and he was happy about it. He's like, "Yeah," he was hopeful in a hopeful manner. Oh, and I'm yeah. like, but I was like, Dad, you understand what that means? <laughs> you know, we don't right. want cities in Antarctica. Like that's that means. What what makes you think like human life civilization as we know it will thrive when we have the ability to put cities in Antarctica? Like he's like right, hundreds gonna, of millions of people are gonna live in Antarctica. I'm yeah. like, oh, oh oh no, that's that's Fox News propaganda. And yeah, who's who's gonna pay for that? <laughs> yeah, I, and so and so it's weird, you know. It's a it's a weird yeah. thing, um, and I and I I completely understand. Um, where the struggle comes from because it's this yeah. segues into my next question in terms of like how do you communicate science better you know what mm-hmm. is it what is it gonna take and i love the idea of using virtual reality the way you you're you're using it and i even thought about and one of the things that i thought about a lot was like okay well, how do i visualize how do i visualize four forty billion particles of co2 and yeah. how do I in, in virtual reality? How do I, how do I make how do I make it like a story that is na- that has this narrative that people can sort of uh, attach their heartstrings to? And it's it's hard. It's definitely it hard. is. Yeah. It is super hard. And that's one of the things that we we realized earlier. I think it was late later last year. Is that well, we're turning from a, a VR development application kind of company to a storytelling company. So we're just now reaching out. You know, we have a, a colleague that collaborates with us. She's a psychologist. We, we have, you know, journalists that's helping us to, you know, better 
even write this script? How do you start? How do you kind of storyboard some of these experiences in a way that they have the the, the best effect uh, on people? And then we also talk to you know uh, community or or city. Uh, 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 staff and folks that are actually working on the next general plan for the city that they need to submit later this year and say, hey, have you thought of these things and how can we include this? So it's uh, 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 communicating it, you know, we, we we have this kind of, uh, it's really basic, like, you know, what is your audience, what are the key messages and what are the takeaways that you you, you want them to get out of this? But then how do you identify that and write it? It's it's a, a tricky part. A lot of our experiences, the longest uh, task is writing the, the script. You know, will be the 3D models will be ready, the flooding scenarios, everything. And then, and then we're sometimes, you know, two, three, four months waiting until all the wording in the script is, is, is right. So, we, you know, or close to right. Because, you know, people are, they need to agree on things. And sometimes, uh, you know, how do you convey some of those things? But one of the things that uh, on how to communicate it, I think we need to simplify it without dumbing it down too much. Mm-hmm. So one of the things we get in every project, like, well, what scenarios are you are you using to show the sea level rise? And then what are the assumptions? And did you account? So we, we don't get into that in this like five to eight minutes that you're looking at this in VR. That's not the goal, right? So we kind of steer away from that minute details and say, hey, this is from, you know, the the United States Geological Survey is the best model available. And here's a low, medium, high scenarios that we need to look into. We don't know which one is going to be right or when they're going to be right, but we know they're coming and it's going to be between, you know, A and B. So the point is not to get that scenario right in this context, it's really to show people that envelope of potential futures so we can start talking about, okay, when are we going to start doing these things? What kind of adaptation pathways can we plan now so we can fund them, make the decisions at the right time, put triggers and, you know, start measuring things. So when sea levels reach, you know, main street here, what is it then that we're going to take action? Or maybe it's when it's 10 feet away on a high tide, you know, how do you uh, uh, include that? but also keep the experience simple enough that folks can say, oh, here's, you know, sea levels are rising. It's going to flood this entire neighborhood eventually later in the century. I can do this three things maybe in the short term, and then I need to have this really hard conversation about moving away from the coast eventually. And that, I think, we're th- that's kind of how we've been doing with these tools. And, uh, and I think it's been successful to start the conversations and uh, – and at least get people a little more engaged, right? I agree. And I'm curious to know, help me weigh in the sort of co- the pros and cons of um, the use, the wording of, because it wasn't until the last two or three, four, maybe four years that I've started, I'm starting to um, see that the media is addressing climate change, some parts of the media as a climate crisis. And even mm-hmm. then, a part of me thinks, but even is that is that enough? You know, why not call it the climate calamity, or why mm. not call it mass suicide by human-made climate alteration? At what point? Maybe that's a little extreme, <laughs> but, yeah. but but what? Yeah. what yeah, yeah, again, you can we can be a, help me under help me weigh in the pros and cons of being too extreme. You know, maybe are we? Yeah, if we scare people too much, maybe that puts them off, and then they give up. Well, 
Tell yeah, me. I think that there's definitely that risk, and we tried. You know, there's uh, you know studies show that you can't scare people into action too much, mm-hmm. especially with climate change, because again, it's such a massive problem that's very easy to be become paralyzed. Yeah. Say, hey, I, I can't do anything. It's like yeah, I might as well, or or whatever I do is not really going to make a difference. So why bother? So I, I think that's when. I think it's it's a fine line between showing some of these impacts in a way that like, oh my God, this is serious. But then you have to have that, okay, what can you do about it? How can you, so that how do you inspire uh, someone that's seen that to say, oh, I'm going to pay attention. Maybe I'll come up to the next, uh, you know, uh, city hall meeting where they're going to talk about this plan and I'm going to say, hey, I don't like this idea or I like that idea. Or maybe I'm going to talk to my friend that doesn't think this is real and try to, you know, bring bring that person on on board. So I think that's a, a, a part of the answer here, right? You need to, but it is it is a problem. You know, there are many people argue that unless we we have rapid systemic change, things you know can't be avoided. Uh, but that means you know I, I worked on a on a study uh, about the impacts of plastic pollution to vulnerable populations. And, and things like single-use plastic, right? How do you get people to stop using it? You got to either give them an alternative or completely outright ban it and make it illegal to do it. But then, you know, there are consequences to that. So I think it's like a multi-tiered from the local to federal, you know, and, and international agreements that will be needed. But... Uh, yeah, if fast is any indication, is like we're not moving nearly fast enough. Mm-hmm. But I think that focusing on going back to kind of what's my uh, our kind of sphere of influence here is like, well, we can help these communities to talk about like if we can't avoid the worst impacts or some of the impacts, what can we do starting now to mitigate the risks and some of the the the, the impacts that are coming. Yeah, hundred percent. The single use plastic yeah. thing is is a big deal. So not a rent. Yeah, because yeah, I. And uh, and that one I have hope a lot of hope you know because I've um, I I gotta make sure that I double check the study but somewhere uh, showed that um, there's a that uh, single use plastics are causing uh are 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 allegedly par causing um, infertility in men and re- and reducing the size of men's penises across the world and knowing men. And human humanity, the way I do, I I have a feeling that uh, we will spring to action immediately. Well, because of, of that, and I think uh, I think I think, uh, but but that's but that's another one. And you know, I have a question about the climate crisis in the COVID pandemic, honestly, because there's mm-hmm. a, I think there's a pattern here um, that uh, I see in that um, both are similar. In that they're they're problems of exponential nature of an exponential nature. Um, one is a disease that works on the timescales um, that we can understand, right? That that we humans understand days, weeks, months, right? Um, and the other one is a disease that that we can't really wrap our minds around because it's it's a it's on Earth uh, more like a Earth planet wide planet wise timescale like decades, you know, centuries. Um, I would say even years at this point, but um, my question is because they're so, because of that uh, abstractness of understanding exponential growth, you know, the exponential growth of 
a COVID outbreak, the exponential growth of allowing glaciers to melt, of allowing sea levels to rise, of allowing um, more and more pollution to get released causes this cascade effect that is sometimes really hard to track. And I'm curious to know what are your thoughts on, you know, what the COVID pandemic taught us looking at this issue that is, um, again, human scale and how humanity responded to something that is, again, on a human scale. It's kind of like a, comparing a car crash versus, again, the slow moving train wreck. Like they're both going in the same direction. And I'm curious, what are your thoughts in terms of like, based on how humans reacted to COVID, how do you think we're going to be able to react to climate change? Yeah, oof, I think we really need to up our game, don't we? Yeah. I, I think the the even now when you know we, we know how to produce the vaccines, we you know we can get them out there, and and you see now people don't want to take it, or places that really need it don't have access to it. So I, I think that that's not a. Uh, I think we could have held, uh, handled this way much much better. But I, I think with the climate, I think there is, you know, a lot of work that has been done already. You know, there's California is a great example, right, where we have very aggressive targets to reduce our emissions. I think the federal government is coming up with, you know, even uh, more aggressive targets for the whole country coming up. We have emissions controls here in, in the state. We have, you know, a cap and trade scheme of emissions here in California. So we have a lot of policies that are being implemented that are great examples and could be applied in other places. And I think this is kind of gaining momentum as well. So I think we are kind of moving in the right direction. Uh, I think the problem is that we're not moving fast enough. So I think we need a little bit more like uh, energy in, into that and get some of these policies enacted elsewhere in other places a little faster. But, you know, we're like the pandemic. If you look at what things look like, you know, six months ago and now what they look like here in the U.S., I think it, it was a rapid as, as like night and day. Right. As like I was I just went out and got a haircut yesterday after being you know fully vaccinated. I, I didn't even worry about it. I was still wearing the mask. But it's like, oh, this is kind of things are coming back to normal. So I, I have hope that we'll, we'll, we'll get here. You know, things won't be as bad as they could be just how uh, how much we can reduce some of this climate impacts is still a question but i think we're we're making efforts to get there it's not fast enough we're still going to have to deal with a lot of the impacts uh and that's where i believe i can add you know more value is like that adaptation and communication side but there's a lot of really smart people working on reducing emissions and trying to get some uh, international agreements and, and things done at, at, at all levels too so i think we'll have to it's really hard to predict the future, right? So, Absolutely. But as I, there's some, there's some hope, and I, I sorry yeah. for inter interrupting, but I'm uh, just no, bringing no. things down to a close. Uh, just a couple more questions. Do you yeah. think that we'll have to? Um, I'm already hearing, uh, watching, and hearing, and reading about um, the argument for uh, geoengineering the planet, putting silver yeah. sulfide in the atmosphere, finding ways to refreeze the Arctic to make sure the permafrost in Siberia doesn't get released. Um, yeah. it, I mean, that's, that's, you know, planet scale engineering. And, and I'm curious, is, is that, is that, is that inevitable? You know, and obviously it's not going to cure the disease. It'll, or it won't solve the problem, but it'll definitely 
buy more time or maybe it'll make things worse. What are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on geoengineering the planet? I have one thought is like, what could go wrong, right? <laughs> I think that's kind of my, yeah, my, my general kind of reaction to this. And I teach a course on uh, sustainable coastal management. We have a class dedicated to geoengineering ideas. And I, I think that the thing is that the system is so complex that no one can really predict, you know, what the impacts of changing one variable would have on the whole system. It's really, really hard with all the feedbacks. And again, it's a whole planet, right? Uh, having said that, I have some friends that are really uh, strong believers of one option, which is to fertilize the oceans to create, you know, more productivity. You create a little more algae and you can kickstart some uh, ecosystems on the oceans that way. And a little bit of that carbon from the algae kind of sinks to the bottom. And it, it's a way to kind of reduce some of the concentrations of CO2. Uh, so that, uh, I think it's it's kind of on the last uh, extreme side of things. But even then, you know, if you start, you know, massive scales of that could have other impacts that we, we may not know. Uh, is it inevitable? I think it is because uh, the cost of doing, you know, if you want to shoot some particles into the atmosphere for you know, reflect sunlight, that just saying it sounds kind of crazy to me. <laughs> But that's on the, you know, someone did a, a study of how much that would cost. And it was, you know, around, if I'm not mistaken, it was about $50 billion per year to do that. So if there's a country that feels like, hey, we're getting the worst here, we're going to become an inhabitable desert if this thing continues, let's just start doing that. So I think we'll, and, and there's no uh, global organism or, or organization that really oversees any of that at the moment as well. So there's talks about creating something like, like what's the governance around some of these projects that are you know, very likely to come up in the next uh, decade or two. So, Yeah. Um, that's a whole can of worms. And I, yeah. because we <laughs> could go on this podcast for hours and hours and hours, I, I want to wrap things up with the last question. And that is, you know, be, this this top topic can be overwhelming, um, and it can get it could get scary quickly, uh, really quickly. Uh, so I want to leave the listeners with um, some moment of uh, inspiration, and hope, and and um, and obviously we've talked about the reality of of what could come, what could happen. But you know, it, again, I don't want to paralyze people and. I, because I'm one of those people. If I get too scared, I freeze. I, right. I'm one of those yeah. people. I, yeah. hella, I super freeze. I hella freeze. Um, so, what are you? What are you? What are you hopeful for? Um, what are some positive things happening in this space of you know solving and alleviating and contributing to helping out against um, this this climate crisis? Um, you know, whether it's technology, whether it's awareness, whether it's less political friction, what are you seeing that gives you hope? There, there's, there's several things. I think that uh, uh, the fact that I see people from all different sorts of life now interested in this issue, just having this conversation with you, Chris, gives me so much hope just to hear about your you know, concern or your enthusiasm about about the, the problem. So that gives me a lot of hope. I think there, you know, younger generations, I was talking to my niece the other day and she's like, oh, why would I ever have a car? There's so much. So, so things are starting to change in that sense where, you know, mobility and the way that cities are thinking, rethinking themselves and starting to plan 
for things like micro mobility, right? You rent a bike, you get to the, the bus or to your train, and then you go to work. Why do you, you know, need to uh, drive a car where you could have like a, this really nice corridor in the town that has trees and there's a cafe and you can stop by. So there are all these things that are, I think we're, we're starting to reimagine how what cities look like. And I think uh, the pandemic really helped with that, where all of a sudden you have all these really large open roads that are empty. So how can we better use some of that space? So I think that that gives me hope. I think sometimes when we, I see the, the impacts of the, the long beach experience that we did uh, in VR, we haven't advertised it yet. Uh, and we're, we're just going to start a campaign to launch it. But it got over a thousand downloads all over the planet. And like no one is just from people finding it and, 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 and looking. So I think there's more interest. And there's also more uh, uh, creative policies that are being enacted. And I, I go back to California as being a great example of some. We got a lot of things wrong here, but I think on the climate front, we're, we're, we're doing a lot of things right that become examples and, and that other states and countries can can use to show. And we prove that you can have economic growth decoupled from increasing your emissions. So let's you know find those examples and, and replicate them and escalate them uh, in other places as well. And, and, and I love this idea of working with multiple communities because they learn from each other. So how can we get the stuff that's working in one place? Things like, you know, how can we use nature in our uh, benefit to really help us to reduce some of these future risks in a way that adds value, right? Or we have more fish now because there's mangrove here and the water is clean. So, hey, it worked for them. Why can't we do it over here? So I think there's there, there's a lot to be hopeful here. And and, and like I have so much uh, uh, fun doing the work that I do, despite this being, you know, a paralyzing issue at times. And I do have my bad days, but I think we're also learning about things like surge capacity. How much can you really take on and, and being more aware of our own kind of sphere of influence and our limitations as well, right? There are whole weeks that I go off without opening the news at all. I start to feel a little alienated. I was like, no, I need this. I need to recharge. So I think we're learning more about how we function and what we need to be more effective as well. So that also gives me quite a bit of hope. I am so grateful for your time. I um, I, I honestly feel like this is one of those conversations that just uh, energized me in a way that I wasn't expecting. And I'm, um, and so I, if if there's anything I can help with, I will definitely try to do my part. Um, Dr. Khalil, uh, I. Um, what are man just i'm just so i'm so honored and thankful and how can people stay in touch how can people follow what you're doing and and get connected and all that good stuff yeah uh we have a, uh for the company stuff we have our website is virtualplanet.tech it has you know our email there you can feel free to reach out we love hearing from people about that and I, yeah, I think that's probably the easiest way, but I, I'm happy to, to provide my email to, to folks if they want to get in touch. Just, uh, just my name, juliano.kalil at gmail.com. Sweet. I'll put that in the yeah. show notes. I'll put yeah, your links perfect. to social media. Uh, make sure yeah. everybody listening, go download the app, go check it out, put it on as many faces as possible and make sure you have your shoulder around so that they can, you know, uh, put their head on after because <laughs> it's awesome it's both it's 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 amazing yeah. and i'm so glad i got to talk to you and so i'm so grateful for your for your work um dr Kirlil, you have been a true scholar and gentleman of virtual reality thanks for your time and um thank you everyone for listening and i'll see y'all later in the metaverse thank you so much